You are about to hear a Bible prophecy message given by Dr. Dave Brees, popular Bible teacher, author, and Bible conference speaker. Dr. Brees is starting to speak on the subject, The Christian's Fabulous Future. We begin today in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And in this notable and in many ways familiar chapter of the Bible, the subject of the Christian's future is introduced for discussion by the Apostle Paul. Let's see what he says, starting with verse 10. Paul, by the way, here is talking about his own ambition. He's talking about what he wants most out of life. And what is his answer? Is it a Mercedes-Benz with musical horns on it that play Jesus, I, my cross have taken? No. He says, here is what I want in life, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the ex-anastasine, the out-resurrection from among the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And our key verse for this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What does Paul speak about? He talks about those things which are before, correct? So the future for the Christian is not just a series of happy accidents, but God has some very special events which are ahead for those of us who know Christ as personal Savior. Let's think about the things that lie before. But first of all, notice something. In this passage, the Apostle Paul says many things. He says life is supposed to be lived with intensity. He says, I press toward the mark. He doesn't say I drift, I dream, I meander, but rather I press toward the mark. We also note in this passage that no one has really arrived in this life. The Apostle Paul says, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. There is never a time when you can lean back on your laurels and say, I have arrived at the deeper life. I've arrived at the enviable position of total sanctification. I now am on the mountaintop, nothing more to learn, nothing more to realize. Now I can look with eyes filled with pride and pity at those lesser Christians who are still in the process of climbing the steep ascent of heaven. Forget that. There never will be such a time in all of life. In fact, be a little concerned about Christians who advise younger Christians by saying, well, when you've been a Christian as long as I have, then you will know so-and-so. Listen, the Christian who properly understands where he is at in life says, I don't know at all. I haven't arrived. I can give only tentative advice 
to others, not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect. If you believe in the doctrine that perfection comes to the Christian in this life, I congratulate you. You are several steps ahead of even the Apostle Paul, who said, not as though I am already perfect. But he talks now about the things that lie before. Oh, and by the way, he tells us how to handle the passing of time, does he not? Handling the passing of time is not easy. Trying to decide what this continuum is called time and watching it slip through our fingers and move out beyond us, that's a very difficult thing to do in life. How are we supposed to do it? Well, Paul gives us a little bit of advice. He says, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth to those things which are before. In other words, the past should not unduly influence the future, right? You may have had some great failures in the past, great failures. That's known as an oxymoronic expression. Well, anyway, you may have some failures that tend to drag your life down today. How can I do anything? Look at the times I've bumped along on the rocks and didn't make it. Well, the Bible says forget that. If within that failure is a moral fault which constitutes sin, what do we do about that? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Watch out for past failure. Don't let it ruin today. But I'll tell you something that will ruin you quicker than failure. And that is success. Why? Because success produces pride. Success produces presumption. Success makes us say, well, now I have it made, and that's not true. Do you know anybody who, in your opinion, is really successful? If that person tells the truth and uh, properly analyzes where he is at, and if you ask him the question, to what do you ascribe your great success, if that person tells you the truth, you know what he'll probably say? He'll say, I don't know. I was just at the right place and at the right time, and lots of other people more deserving than I could have had this twist of fate that amounted to these good things, and yet it happened to happen to me. That's really about it. Forget all these motivational things where you listen to these television programs. And by the way, I am not an avid television fan, except to watch The King is Coming, you understand. But uh, I have picked up a, a piece of some of the programs that are going here. How to get rich in real estate, and how to, and how to make a million dollars in the stock market, and all the rest of it. Well, let me tell you something. The people who are promoting those things, they make far more on the cassettes that they sell you than they ever made on the stock market or in real estate, and that, of course, is why they are on television. But anyway, True success is not a predictable or planable thing. You can work diligently. You can be totally faithful. You can invest yourself 10 hours a day to accomplish this or that. I hope you're doing it as unto the Lord, because the human results of your activity are simply not a predictable thing. 99% of the people who spend big money taking secret courses as to how to be a great success will never make it according to their own estimate. Watch out for past success. It could ruin today. So the point is that Paul says, look, don't worry too much about the past. Don't carry a whole lot of baggage from yesterday. But here's what he says, press to those things 
which are before, reaching out to those things which are before. All right, that being the case, what lies before? The Christian's future. What is within that future for you and me? Several things. I hope that you will find them worth noting. What's the first thing that lies ahead for the Christian? Answer, the privilege of living for Christ in a very exciting world. The privilege of living for Christ in a very exciting world. Do you realize the difference between this world, the world of the 1980s, and what it was like 50 years ago, 100 years ago? Listen, it is so different, it's almost impossible to compare the two. We have people here this morning, I'm rather sure. You can remember when there uh, almost were no automobiles. Or you can remember when the ones that you saw were precarious, asthmatic wrecks that could hardly make it down the street and around the corner. You can remember when airplanes were considered provably dangerous, and you never could have anticipated them. These fast aircraft moving with almost perfect safety, carrying three and four hundred people on them. You can remember when it was possible, when it was difficult to get news from any great distance except over a number of days. We now live in a time where instantly what happens at the ends of the earth can be brought, transmitted to us in almost a twinkling of an eye like the speed of light. The world has become a smaller place from then until now. We live in a world that has become one that we can visualize, one that we can imagine, one that we can do something about it has turned into a very exciting age. Speak into a microphone like the many around here. Your voice can be heard seven times around the world in one second. Stand in front of a television camera, and the impress of your life can be put upon literally millions of people. It is estimated that nearly three billion people saw the Olympics as those fabulous pictures were transmitted from here in the Los Angeles area, out across the world. Well, it is a very exciting age. The age of communication, the age of transportation, the age of the advance of science, the age of medical miracles, and all of this. But the age of spiritual possibilities. Why? It's safe to say that it's possible in this world to accomplish almost more by accident for Christ than you could do on purpose once upon a time. It's possible in one moment via the media to speak to more people than even lived in the whole world at the age of the time of Christ. It is an exciting age, wonderful beyond description, and we have the privilege of living for Christ in that world. Why is it that once you were saved, why is it that the Lord didn't take you to heaven right then? Why is it that God didn't go zippo and the moment you accepted Christ, you were translated from this life into the life to come? Why? Because God's got a mission for you to perform in this world. He'll take us all to heaven someday, but in the meantime, and that's where we live, in the meantime, he has placed before us a great opportunity, a great challenge. He's told us to go into the whole world and preach the gospel. He's told us we are ambassadors for Christ. He has told us that we can shine like a light in the world, even to the extent of influencing the course of a crooked and perverse 
nation. He's told us that life in the great contest in this world, the contest between Christ and Satan, can be lived so as to accomplish marvelous results for his glory. So look, don't go home, don't go home and hide under the bed. Don't say that life is too difficult. Don't say that I can't handle life. Jesus told us, I am come that you might have life, and that you have, might have life more abundantly. And when does that life begin? It begins the moment I come to know Christ as personal Savior. While in this life, the Christian is given the promise that Jesus Christ is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. In this life, we are promised divine strength, divine enablement, divine supply. In this life, we are promised that we can be workers together with God. So, think of living for Christ as being a great privilege. And by the way, it occurs to me to say, think of living for Christ as an American Christian, as being an unusual privilege indeed. Your life would be in deadly peril if you were involved in a service of public worship like this in the Soviet Union or many other countries of the world. In America, God has given the church leverage that is astonishing so that so much can be done for Christ. It is almost beyond imagination. What are the things that lie before the privilege of living for Christ in a very exciting world? And I do hope that each of us see that this morning as a great gift, an unusual privilege given to no generation of Christians in just the way it has been given to us. No generation of Christians in all of history. All right? We have the privilege of living for Christ in a very exciting world, but what comes next? What comes after the exercise of that great privilege? Well, that next event can be a spectacular one. And what is it? It is the event of being translated from this world into the world to come. It is the event of being translated from temporal life into eternal life. It is to be taken to heaven. Now let's think for just a moment because... The Bible teaches that there is not one, but there are two possible ways that we will get from this world into the world to come. What are those two possible ways? Possible way number one, via physical death. It's appointed unto men once to die, the Bible says. However, let me, let me quickly say that a Christian does not die. We do not use that word death seriously about a Christian. Jesus said, whosoever lives and believeth in me shall never die. The Apostle Paul said that, that Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So when you think of physical death, do not think of the external observation of physical death, but think simply of going to sleep and awakening instantly in the arms of of Jesus Christ. A Christian, strictly speaking, does not even lose consciousness. He is brought from this world into the world to come. So, so um, bright was that anticipation 
with the Apostle Paul that Paul said, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ. We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this we groan earnestly desiring to be put upon with our house which is from heaven. So God has ordained that this physical body, which has not yet been delivered from the bondage of corruption, this physical body will expire as to its human capability, will be taken via physical death from this world to the world to come. Now when I say that, that this experience ought not to be the object of our fear, I'm quite aware that humanly speaking, many times people are apprehensive about this event. It's like Thomas Gray said in his elegy, for who to dumb forgetfulness a prey, this pleasing, anxious being e'er resigned, left the warm precincts of the cheerful day, nor cast one longing, lingering look behind. That's the way it is, humanly speaking. But nevertheless, Christ presides over this event. But wait a minute. There's a second possible way that we may get from this world into the world to come. What is that second possible way? Well, the Apostle Paul clearly tells us that there is a generation of Christians that will not see death. What he says is, behold, I show you a mystery, something that you couldn't figure out just by human logic. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. There is a generation of Christians that will not die physically, but they'll be caught up to be with Christ. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them who are asleep for. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What is that event? We have come to call it the rapture of the church. That wonderful moment when Christ will come, he will catch us up from our human pursuits, we will meet him in the air, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. Time would fail to give you all of my sentiments about what will happen on the occasion of the rapture of the church, but there's one notable event that's a part of that, of which the Bible speaks that maybe we ought to remember. What is that? At that moment, the moment of the rapture of the church, you and I will receive new and glorified bodies. The scripture says uh, concerning what the Christian really is, beloved now are we the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know 
that when he shall appear, we shall be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. Your physical body with its limitations will be instantly transformed into the body that you will inhabit for eternity. No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more physical limitation. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have a sense of physical limitation? A few problems, a few aches and pains here and there? Well, of course you do. There's not a person in this world over 35 that's not taking pills for something. Uh, my uncle said to me not long ago, he said, you know, uh, when you're getting old, when you wake up in the morning, everything hurts. And what doesn't hurt doesn't work, you know. All right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's not going to be like that forever. You can look at hands that, that may be less strong than once they were. You can uh, wonder why the mind doesn't turn quite so fast. You sense that you are bearing the burden of the years. And indeed, the burden of the years is something. Uh, even flat land tends to be like walking up a hill and all of this. But one day it's going to be different. One day like that, you're going to be transformed into his likeness. We're all going to be young again, strong again, smarter than ever before. C.S. Lewis talks about this in one place. You know what he says? He says, you do not know any mere mortal, and certainly you don't know an ordinary Christian. The nicest person you know who is not a Christian will one day be a thing so terrible as to only now be met in a nightmare. But the meanest Christian you know, <laughs> who's the meanest Christian you know, huh? the meanest Christian you know, will one day be a splendor so magnificent, so that if we could see it now, we should be sorely tempted to fall down and worship it. That's what you're going to be like when Jesus comes. We sang this morning the song to which Ira Sankey wrote the music, There Will Be No Dark Valley when Jesus comes. They sang that during the days of the old Moody and Sankey campaigns at the end of the last century. D.L. Moody didn't quite make this century. He died in 1898. They sang it during those days, and what an inspiration it was to people who lived in a less fulfilling world than this one, but they knew that when they went to be with Christ, it would be infinitely better and very different. So, the next event in the Christian's glorious future, our translation from this world into the world to come. Well, what follows that? There follows then an event of which every one of us should be conscious almost every day that we live. The judgment seat of Christ. Maybe you'd like to check on that. The book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about the judgment seat of Christ. And it gives us a very interesting word. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now this word labor is an interesting one. It means we are ambitious. We make it our aim. It is our goal. 
It is our highest intention. Therefore, we are ambitious that whether present or absent, we should be accepted of him. People go around, especially those who are used to being involved in what somebody calls the deeper life, and they say, no Christian should be ambitious. Well, the Bible says your life should be characterized by spiritual ambition. You should make it your aim. It should be your great desire that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. We make it our aim. Why? Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to that he hath done. Please turn this cassette over for the conclusion of Dr. Brees' message. <laughs> 